Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from both Deuteronomy 22 and 23. We'll be reading Deuteronomy 22, run through 12, and 23, 15 to 25. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with its young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised to do with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. This is the word of the Lord. have the conviction that the word of the Lord and the whole counsel of God's word is profitable for us. So each week we preach from that word. Uh, and if you've been looking through Deuteronomy 22 and 23 and you're a little bit disappointed with the selection of reading that I have given, don't worry. We will let all of it be profitable to us this morning. Before we do, just a brief prayer. Father, just teach us, please. 
to delight in your law. Open up our eyes that we may see wondrous truths that are there. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. One of the sounds of summer, especially after a storm has passed through Oklahoma, is the sound of nails on the roof. Right? You, you wake up early in the morning before it's hot or before it's real hot, and you hear that dunk, 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 dunk over and over and over again. As new roofs are being put on, shingles are being laid, it's nail guns going after the shingle. And what we know is that one nail isn't going to hold enough, right? You need lots of nails, and so you, you're going to hear this repeatedly. They get those nail guns going, and they really ratchet off some nails to put on that roof to hold the whole roof. And it takes all those nails to hold the roof in place, to keep those shingles from, from moving in the, the wind or being thrown off in the wind. And in Deuteronomy, it's midsummer, and we are putting down laws like those nails in the roof. One isn't going to do it. We're going to need lots of them to make sure that these people, as they go into the land, are going to be sustained in the right kind of ways, have what they need in order to be held in place as a holy people in the promised land. Now, if you were to look on the books of any nation at any time in history, I'm guessing you would find some strange laws. Now, uh, you know that some of these laws exist because, I mean, they're in board games. They'll ask these questions. What's truth and what's not truth about these random laws from different countries at different times? And, and you wonder at times, like, why is that law here? Well, the laws we're getting ready to go through are those kind of laws, right? They're, they're the like, why are those here laws? And many of these laws don't fit into neat categories. In fact, I'd say a lot of them don't. You look in, in the heading on my Bible in chapter 22 is various laws. And then we move to 23, you know, starting in verse 5, and it says miscellaneous laws. Now, the distinction, of course, those headings are not inspired headings, right? But like those distinctions between one is a various law and a miscellaneous law is lost on me. Perhaps you have an explanation. But what we need to avoid is to make sure that we don't think that that means that these laws weren't understandable to the original audience and readily applicable to them, right? They could do these things. They could carry them out. And in fact, they were expected to. God, God expected them not only to be able to understand, but to carry them out. And these laws, regardless of whether we can understand them and apply them in the same ways, still show us God's character, that he's this righteous God, and every law in here is completely righteous. It reflects his righteousness. It shows us again that he wants a people that is, that is holy, that is fully devoted to him, that's obedient to him, that listens to his word and carries it out. And we know that the sum of the law is to love God and to love others. And so all these laws, in one way or another, point Israel to loving God and to loving others. Now, it's easier to see that with some of these laws than with others. We start off fairly easy with, with chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, to see how this could point this people to loving their brothers. He says, you shall not set, see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you don't know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. These would have been important animals for their financial well-being, for carrying out their, their duties in the land, to get produce from the land. And so these are important animals. So it's important that if they go astray, they're taken care of. God wants his people to have an eye towards the needs of others, including if their ox goes astray would have been an important issue for them. That also includes some, some more things. It, not just oxen. Look at verse 3. You shall do the same with his donkey. 
or with his garment, which I'm not sure how garment gets thrown in with ox and donkey, but we're looking out for the needs of our brothers here. Any lost thing of your brothers, which he loses and you find, you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help them to lift them up again. An outward eye towards others. He does this again in In verse verse 8. When you're building a house, you shall build a parapet around the roof. You may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house. If anyone should fall from it, they would have used this for different things, napping, all all sorts of things on the top of the roof. It would have been flat. And he's saying build a wall so that someone doesn't just kind of accidentally fall off. It's a way to have an eye towards others to protect them. And and these laws, they have this very kind of Good Samaritan-ish tone to them. Right? You, you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10? And, and Jesus, if you turn there, he's asked about what it means to love a neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Verse 25. A lawyer stands up says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus replied, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, who fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went out to him and bound up his wounds, pouring, oil, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next game, day, he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus is answering the question, who is my neighbor? And what is he doing with this one that is a neighbor? He's looking to his needs. He's showing him, here's what it would look like to meet the needs of another. Jesus shows first what it looks like to not love neighbor. Both a Levite and a priest just happen to walk by and they ignore the man who'd been beaten and is over there laying down in the ditch. Sometimes we, we think of the opposite of love is, is hate, but it, it seems so clear that the opposite of love at times is just completely ignoring them. And Moses instructs Israel in Deuteronomy, like, don't ignore the needs of one another. And a practical way to love them and not ignore them to tend to their needs is to take care of their ox or their donkey if it's loose. Even take it into your own pen. Feed it. Take care of it. Make sure you're meeting that need. If they have a coat that's missing, you, you take care of it. Make sure you can restore it, return it back to them. This is how God loved Israel, isn't it? Yet yeah, we know how he led Israel out of Egypt in a cloud and a fire. How he provided manna. But do you remember in chapter 8, verse 4, he says, man, I even made sure that your clothes didn't wear out. And he meets their needs all the way down to the very practical daily needs of life. And so Israel then, as this nation, knows what it's like to be recipients of the kind of love that God gives, the kind of practical love that God gives. And what God is telling them to do here in Deuteronomy 22 is saying, go do that. Do likewise. Reflect the love that I have given to you with one another. And that's where Jesus ends the parable on the Good Samaritan as well, doesn't he? He he says, go and do likewise. Who is the neighbor? Go do that. And Jesus himself shows the way. 
right? The, the world was in the ditch. The world is in the ditch, right? The, the ox is loose in the world, and what does Jesus do? There's no hope from any other source for relief, for fixing the problem other than the merciful one. And here he sees the world in the ditch, and he doesn't ignore them and walk by on the other side. Instead, Philippians 2, 7 and 8 kind of spells this out for it. What he does, he, he takes the form of a servant. He humbles himself to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He sacrificially gets into the ditch to save those who couldn't get out on their own. He's looking to the needs of others. And all that's required for rescue, if we're those that are in the ditch, is to know our need. Because Jesus came to meet that very need. Those who look to him are, are pulled out of the ditch at his cost. As the Good Samaritan passed along and said, this is my expense. Jesus jumps into the ditch, pulls us out and says, it's on me. And all you need to be rescued is need. And those who receive this kind of love are then turned by Jesus outward to go do likewise. In Philippians chapter 2, as he said, like this is the, what Jesus did. He, he said just before that in Philippians 2, 4, that you need to not only look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. He's saying, look at what Jesus has done. Go do likewise. Go, go follow in that example. If the ox is loose, like look to the needs of others. Like try to figure out how you can meet those needs in one another's lives. Jesus has shown how to look to the interests of others, living in the design that God had given them to live in. Like this is the way they're to live, to look to the needs of others. Now in chapter 22, we're going to see how that design extends a little bit further past just looking to the needs of others. Look in verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Strong language. You wonder why, why is that specific thing an abomination? It's not about fashion or some sort of cultural input to this, right? It's not about those things. Those things wouldn't be an abomination. Almost certainly, this practice was tied to some sort of paganism that was probably present in the land that they would have known about. So it would have been tied to some of those things that they would have seen. Likely, it was tied to even some sort of pagan worship, some sort of cultic worship. But we know that there's some sort of sexual immorality likely practiced in that. But within this pagan worship, here's what's going on in this cross-dressing. There's an undermining of gender distinctions happening. So they're switching clothing. In other words, they're, they're cutting at the legs of God's created order. So this is why the prohibition is aimed at apparel. Right? It's, like, it's aimed at that design. Man and woman are to be distinct. God said, Genesis 1, 27, male and female, he created them. Both image bearers, but distinct, and both created by God. Male and female is a distinction that God made in the beginning. Before there's sin, before there's anything messing anything up, this is part of God's creation order, and he calls it good. So this distinction throughout the scripture we see is a distinction that is to be kept and maintained. To seek to erode that distinction to erode the differences between male and female, even by cross-dressing, is to reject God's good design. And I think that's the way to explain why God calls that an abomination. It's interesting that Paul addresses something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about head coverings and 
these head coverings with whatever else is going on in that passage, it's a creation order issue. So look in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 11. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. In other words, Paul says something about head coverings, and then he appeals to what? Creation order. And then he says in verse 14, does not nature itself teach? What's he appealing to? The, the nature of creation, God's design, God's order. So whatever else is going on there, it's not primarily about clothing. It's about God's ordering, God's design. And the same thing is true in, in Deuteronomy. It's not primarily an issue of clothing. It's an issue of, of undermining God's design, God's created order, God's good distinctions that he has given for male and female. The erasing and the undermining of God's design and gender distinction is not a move toward God, but a move away from God. So what God has created and called good should not be eroded away, should not be diminished or minimized in the midst of God's people. These are things that God has created and called good, so God's people should reflect that and keep those distinctions and call them good as well. So without hesitation then, Moses moves on to another hot-button issue. Verse 6 and 7, if you come across a bird's nest in any tree or ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young of the eggs, you shouldn't take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you, and you may live long. The other day, I, I was walking, and on the sidewalk was a hummingbird. I think it was hurt, and I, I stopped and kind of bent down and looked at it. It didn't move anywhere, so I just left it alone, and I came back, and I was like, wait a second, did I do the right thing according to the law? There was no nest nearby, so I think I'm good for now. Why is this given? I, we don't know, right? So that's part of the answer. Uh, it's possible that he says that you might live long in the land, that the principle here is, is a little bit like what we do with chickens, right? If you take out all the hens, you don't have eggs that could, could produce and be helpful for you in terms of longevity in this place. Perhaps that's what's going on. So let the mother continue so that, that they can continue to produce for you, but you can eat the eggs. Maybe that's it. Again, he moves right on. He thinks that they're going to understand this and apply this. So he says, verse 9. We did verse 8 earlier. Let's skip down to verse 9. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth or of wool and linen mixed together. Sowing, plowing, dressing, they're all dressed together, kind of, again, without explanation. And, and again, we don't have a ton of background that just fills in. It's like, here's exactly what's going on here. But here's what we know, that all of this would have kept Israel, again, as a distinct people. Like, why do you do that? Because we're holy to the Lord. We're, we're distinct people because God has told us to. Right? It, that's the main reason, it seems. And so again, especially you see this with verse 12. You shall make, kind of rounding out this session, he says, you shall make yourselves tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. And so that seems like an odd one to kind of end this section, but if you look in Numbers chapter 15, it speaks to these tassels. Verse 37, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of glue on the tassels of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them. And to not follow after your own heart or your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to the Lord your God. So perhaps the, the, even the sowing, the plowing, and, and what you wear, and, and those tassels are all meant to kind of summarize the same kind of thing. To remember that God is your God and that you're a distinct people. To remind them everywhere that they are and everything that they do that they're to be holy unto the Lord 
a people that obeys him and keeps his word even when they maybe don't understand. Now, perhaps in Israel's history, there's nowhere that Israel's distinction and holiness was to be more clear than in the area of sexual morality. And he goes on to list several situations in at least some sort of coherent section here in chapter 22 and 23 that address the reality of sinful Israel in the promised land. Again, he he addresses the reality of what's going to happen there so that they can apply these things in the land. Verse 13 of chapter 22. If a man takes a wife and he goes into her and hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I didn't find in her evidence of virginity. So this is a a major accusation, a a big charge in Israel. This accusation would, would bring not only this woman, but her entire family into poor light. And that's probably putting it pretty lightly. It would be to cut against the the reputation, not only of this woman and her family, but of the the people of Israel. And notice that this accusation isn't one that's just accepted. And just believe him and carry on from there. These instructions, they, they work to protect this woman and her family from some sort of major accusation. From a false charge. From someone just trying to like, Get their own way in a sinful way. So here we go in verse 15. It says, And the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city of the, in the gate. And the father of the young, young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I didn't find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet, this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Essentially, this this cloak uh, amounts to evidence that the woman wasn't pregnant before consummating the marriage, right? So if that's the case, here's what he's saying. And if that's the case, then this man has falsely accused her. And then the action, the judgment is to go against the man who falsely accused this woman. This is a, a major charge against this woman and her reputation and her family's reputation, including the the father who would have been in charge of her during especially the betrothal period when this pregnancy would have supposedly by this man happened. So it's a major charge against a woman and her family. And so if this is a false charge, verse 18, the elders of the city shall take the man and whip him and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all of his days. Now, no doubt, when we read this, it sounds like a hard situation for this woman. Now she's going to be stuck with this man who would give this false charge against her because he hates her. And undoubtedly, it's going to be some serious work for them to have a good marriage from this point. But I think this comment helps. One says this, that the law takes the view that the security and provision of a household, even in the home of such a man, is preferable to the insecurity of a divorced woman that nobody else is likely to marry. Again, we need to remember that Moses is giving laws and addressing a very broken situation with a view towards the best we can, taking care to protect the vulnerable woman in this situation. And so, yeah, it sounds hard, but we're, we're trying to bring some sense of help to a very troubled situation. But in verse 20, the scenario flips. If the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman. And again, if true is a a key statement. 
right? The people of Israel, the people of God should really care about the truth. The truth matters to God. The truth should matter to his people. And if it's true, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Sexual morality, it's, it's repeatedly called for, you need to purge this sin from your midst. 22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, this is more sexual morality that needs to be purged. Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Verse 23, if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. The, the latter scenario is assuming that had she had cried out for help, there would have been help available. Less likely to have secluded hotel rooms where no one could hear what was going on in Israel, in their camp, and in their midst. And so there's this assumption that's going on here that help would have been available. But that's not true everywhere, so verse 25 addresses that. If in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he has met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Again, there's out in the open and there is the assumption that there was a cry for help and and no one was around and so the the punishment is brought on to the man and finally we kind of round out one more kind of rape scenario in chapter 22 in verse 28 if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her he may not divorce her all his days. And likely the penalty here is a little bit different because there's no break of relationship that was already there, like one that was betrothed in the earlier cases. And again, we get to this place where it sounds like, man, now this woman is going to have to stay with this man. And that seems like a hard situation, but it protects her and any child born from her and actually gives her ongoing provision. Do you remember the story of, of Amnon and Tamar in Second and Second Samuel? Chapter 13, Amnon loved, not the kind of love, godly love, his sister Tamar, and he rapes her. And then looks what, look what happens. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And he said to her, get up and go. And notice what she says. This gives us a, a, an understanding of the situation that young women would have been in should this be going on in Israel. Notice what she says. No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. So one wrong is, is greater. And, and what Moses is trying to do is say, let's not move into greater wrong here. Let's make sure that that woman is provided for and protected on an ongoing way and not worse may happen. And then in verse 30, one last scenario of sexual morality is addressed. 22, verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. And this seems uh, like a far stretch. But we think about, again, they're addressing reality. 
And, and likely what was, this was, was a stepmother. And, and likely, again, well, there might have been in our day and times, like moms and dads have a, a decent distance of, age, distance of age. That may not have been true here. And so, like, this is a, a serious scenario, something that Moses needed to speak to. But when we get to the end of, of chapter 22, and that this entire section of sexual morality exists, shows how far we've come from Eden. Shows the extent of the brokenness present in, in Israel. And, and sexual immorality, it just litters their history everywhere. Judah and Tamar. Reuben takes his father's right concubine, Bilhah. And we could go on and on with the sexual immorality that's present in the people of Israel from very early on. It's all over their history. It litters every corner of it almost. There, brokenness is everywhere. And that brokenness brings on hardship for men and women and families all through. It causes much havoc. And here's these laws. Here's what these laws are doing. They're seeking to mitigate that brokenness, to protect the vulnerable as best they can, and to promote purity in their midst. They're purging this so that they don't have to continue to deal with these things. These laws aim at keeping some semblance of the family and sexual morality intact in their midst. And God is so concerned about sexual morality within his people because God is the one who designed sex and marriage and family. And this good design from this good creator, this ordering that he has given is for the flourishing of his people, for the flourishing of man and woman and their offspring. It's for the flourishing of all of the things that he has created and called good. And so sexual immorality has to be purged because it rages against God's good design that he had given in the beginning. And what's permissible in terms of sexual immorality and sexual morality in the arena of sexual morality reveals more than just cultural boundary markers, more than just even physical boundaries and physical lines that we could draw. What's permissible in terms of sexual immorality, because it's God's design, reveals one's heart toward God and his image bearers. And so always this place of sexual morality from the beginning got fraught with much difficulty and perversion and continues on today because it's God's design and because it reveals our hearts for God, this is going to be a place that's going to be a constant spiritual battleground. It's always going to be a place of spiritual contention. Sexual morality is always going to be on the target of the enemy. Let's aim there because it destroys so much if it's perverted. Undoubtedly, the enemy who loves to steal, kill, and destroy has his fingerprints all over this arena. It's why it is so perverted in almost every point of history that you can look to. And adding into sexual morality, confusion, or temptation, or even more sin into God's good design wreaks havoc for the people that are caught up in it. It destroys so many good things that God has given and ordered. And if we look around, the, the carnage that has been created by sexual immorality is just evident everywhere, all over. Sexual immorality litters our history too. We look in our own lives and we can see the carnage of sexual immorality that maybe not be completely obvious to those on the outside, but we know the toll that is taken on our lives and on our souls. But the truth is, is God's good design is better and sexual immorality, though evident everywhere, though has inflicted much pain, does not have to be the last word. 
more powerful than the brutal reality of sexual immorality and all the brokenness in its wake is the gospel. Paul looks to Eden and the pronouncements made there, the good pronouncements of man and woman, and that for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave and hold fast to his wife. He looks back at that Edenic pronouncement and he says of that, that's a profound mystery. Paul, pretty smart guy, he doesn't say a lot is really mysterious. Like he has a lot and has figured out a lot for us. And he looks back at that and says, wow, that's, that's mysterious. That's profoundly mysterious. And, and I say that it's pointing to, to more than just that thing. It's pointing to, through his vantage point, looking back, Christ in the church. So sex and, and marriage and family, they're, they're remnants of Eden, and they point beyond themselves, Paul says, to the love that exists between God and his people, Christ and his church. They point to the love of God for us in Christ. They point to the love of God for sexual sinners like us. So in other words, immorality is not the last word for those in Jesus. The gospel is stronger and more powerful than that. We read this in, in 1 Corinthians Love this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know? Again, Paul was dealing with some of these very same issues that Deuteronomy addresses in the Corinthian church. But here's what he says to them. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. And we need to own that. There's our sexual brokenness right there. And we, we can own that because of what's coming. You, you can own this and turn from it because of what he says next. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is our history. That, that list is our history. We can locate ourselves there, but that is who we, if we're in Christ, if we've trusted in Him, that is who we were. Because our sexual brokenness is not the last word. The gospel gets the last word. Such were some of you, but you were now. Here's the last word for us. Washed, sanctified, justified. We didn't do it. It's because of Jesus. It's what he has done. If our life is littered with sexual sin, and we know from our own existence, from our experience, like it is, then we can know that justification is offered to us in Jesus, who can wash us, who can clean us, who can justify us, so that we can turn from those who were those things to those who are now justified in Christ Jesus. So that in Jesus, we know now, 1 Corinthians 6, 13, that our body is not made for sexual morality, but for the Lord. We are now bought with a price so that we can honor God with our bodies. So there needs to be no confusion among God's people. There is a place for us to land with our sexual immorality and perversion. It's in Jesus. We turn from it and we let him take it and cleanse us of it. We turn away from it as those who are now justified and cleansed in him. And we walk away from it knowing that now I've been bought with a price and I'm not my own. So I'm going to honor God with my body now. I don't need to give myself to those things anymore. 
Like the, my body's not made for things, those things anymore. It's made for the Lord. So there should be no confusion among us as God's people. If you're in Christ, here's what he says of us. That sexual immorality should not be named among you, Ephesians 5.3. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is God's will for you. Your sanctification. He wants you to be holy. And here he'll spell it out a little bit more. That you abstain from sexual immorality. It's part of our holiness. The, the gospel, what it does is it, it gives us a, a greater, deeper, truer, longer identity than our sexual immorality, than our sin. It delivers us from the power of sexual sin so that we can no longer walk in sexual immorality, but walk in the will of God, which is our sanctification. We can walk in holiness. That's a better word for us. And that was God's aim for Israel. He wanted them to be holy. He, he repeats it over and over again. Be holy. Be holy. Here's some areas to be holy. He has always designed men and women to be holy, to even walk in sexual purity throughout their days. He repeatedly calls them to this. And the law, what it's doing is it's promoting holiness in their midst. Holiness in God's people is so important that God is careful with who is included as part of that people. That's where we turn in chapter 23. He's careful with who enters into the assembly of the Lord. And that phrase, the assembly of the Lord, that you'll see in 23.1 and, and following through 23.1 through 8. The assembly of the Lord is a worshiping community. It, it is used when Israel as a whole is gathered before the Lord at Sinai, hearing from the Lord, receiving his law, going through the, the, the ritual of worship and, and covenant commitment to him. It was from those who were redeemed by God. The object of their spiritual worship was the Lord. He was the one who was receiving their worship. He was the one who was honored as one who had pulled them out of Egypt and given them his good word. And so the assembly of the Lord seems to be this people of Israel gathered in the presence of God as a worshiping people. This assembly that he's going to speak of in 23 looks forward to when Israel is going to gather in Jerusalem at the place within the place for worship, for festivals, for sacrifice, for the hearing of the word in God's presence. And so what I think is going on here is that the assembly of the Lord that he's going to address in chapter 23 is narrower than just those who were dwelling within the promised land. That there would be people within the promised land that would be, in a sense, resident aliens. And I think that the assembly of the Lord is a little bit more narrow than just the people that were in their midst. And within that, people in the promised land, even to the assembly, there is some exclusion in this assembly. Verse uh, one of chapter 23. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. I know you have been waiting for an explanation on this. Like these are the verses that as, as junior high kids, we we're, we're giggle at the whole time and wonder why they're in there. But the reality is, is that this was known in the ancient Near East. And it was known in connection with cultic temples, pagan worship. And again, like the cross-dressing that we saw in chapter 22, this is cutting against God's design, isn't it? God created male and female, and he calls them good. In other words, he created specifics there, distinctions there, and he called them good. And so this is cutting against that. And so both the rejection of God in worship, which is likely what he's aiming at as well with this, and the rejection of God's good design in distinctness of gender, which is also going on here, whatever is primarily in mind, we don't know, but both of those are taking shots at, at God and his good order and design in the world. Perhaps both are in mind when he says, don't do this. And that's why they're excluded. He continues in verse two, 
No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Perhaps this is one born in, in the midst of, of cultic prostitution or in incest. In other words, these are likely children born outside of marriage, which was God's good design. And even beyond that, another degree in some sort of prohibited relationship outside of that, such as some sort of cultic prostitution or in an incestual relationship. In verse 3, he continues with the exclusions. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord God loved you. I love how he just drops that in there, in the middle of all this kind of strange explanation. Remember, he did this because he loves you. He loves you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor the Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking. Likely, you biblical scholars out there are thinking, wait a second, Moabites are excluded forever, and yet we know of one very famous Moabite named Ruth, who actually even has a, a book of the Bible named after her. So what are we to make of Ruth and, and the exclusion from the assembly of the Lord that exists forever? I would just submit to you that there's some complexity here that I'm not sure that we know how to work out fully, or at least I don't. Uh, I think the complexity of the laws that would apply to Ruth and in this situation are difficult. So I, I think we, you can listen, I think online we, we've preached through Ruth. And I think I may have made the error of just kind of oversimplifying the answer to that. I don't think it's a simple answer. And so my encouragement is to just not overly simplify as you think about Ruth and her inclusion in all of this. So here's the possible answers. You, you think, well, well, Ruth, yeah, she was a Moabite, but that was just ethnically. Like, she turned spiritually. She was an Israelite, and, and that is, of course, true. But if it's just concerning becoming an Israelite, then why is there a difference between the Edomites and just being the third and fourth generation? Why couldn't any generation, again, just come in as Israel? And why is Moabite not forever, right? Like, you, you understand that if it's just a matter of, if it's just a faith matter, then, then why the difference in generation? Why do you say the third generation here and then to the tenth, which is to say forever, in another ethnicity? I think that's a difficult question to get around. Or we could just say maybe Ruth was an exception. We're just going to slide her in under the radar. I, that's entirely possible too. The, the exclusions uh, don't simply apply uh, also literally. Notice the symbolic things that are going on here. Edom is this brother. Well, they know this, like, yeah, kind of. Symbolically, Edom is a, is a brother, right? That would have been, you know, distant relations. But he says he talks to them as if they're brothers, and so they're treated differently. So in other words, there is some symbolic language here, too. And, and this is where I think I found the most helpful. Uh, this commentator says this, using kind of that symbolic language. He says this, that this law is consistently interpreted, that is the law of exclusion, specifically of, of Moabites, um, is consistently interpreted symbolically rather than literally elsewhere in the scripture. The narrative rationale seems to function as the basis of the law over and against genealogical 
or ethnic identity. So, in other words, there's some symbolic language going on here, but the law is going to triumph still over genealogy or ethnicity in terms of identity. The law is to win. Boaz, certainly as he uh, pursues Ruth, I think clearly takes her as one who is not excluded from the assembly of the Lord. And perhaps we could say, here's one who has way more authority on the issue than we do, as one who would have understood these things well, and actually seems to be a really righteous man, and looks in the right way towards what's going on, and given the description that he gives there, his interpretation of this law is probably the best one, and he certainly doesn't see her as excluded. But we don't know how he got there, necessarily. There's not an explanation on how he justified her inclusion into the assembly of the Lord. Maybe, as this author goes on to say, that maybe Boaz had a, an idea of Ruth as Paul does of Israel. Listen to this next comment. This symbolic identity could mark in a similar fashion as Israel does for Paul. Just as not all Israel is Israel, not all Moabites are Moabites. And so perhaps Ruth is a Moabite of Moabites. Right? Like she's in a different category. She fits the different category of what a Moabite is. All that to say is that this case reminds us that these exclusions and, the, and their details like, are just not spelled out for us. Perhaps they're a barrier for Israel to say, be careful with just letting someone in to this assembly, that that doesn't then hurt the assembly and what's going on here because of their lack of sincerity in their faith and covenant to God. Perhaps it's just laid down as judgment against these nations. Certainly there's some tone of that. Perhaps there's a different reason for these exclusions that we don't know. It's another place to acknowledge that God knows and that he gives these things because he loves Israel for their good and that he is one who can be trusted. And so even if we don't understand all the explanations, we can say, well, God is God. He's the one who's speaking. We're lucky that we're even alive in his speech. So let's submit to him in his word here. The idea of God excluding any of those seems to be a completely repugnant thought in our culture, doesn't it? And that God would have this list, even a detailed list of certain nations that would be excluded, lands as harsh. But again, even for us, God is God. We are not Him. And part of our explanation, part of the explanation I'd give to you, part of the explanation for ourselves and that we could give to others in the midst of all these exclusions that God have because we don't have a full answer, because we can't explain it and justify every single detail of it, is to say, you need to take that to the Lord. I'm sure he can handle all of our questions. I'm sure he can handle other people's questions. Say, like, you need to wrestle with him about that and see if you can't work it out. But at the same time, part of our explanation in response to this is to say, let's also look at the full picture that we have of God. I'll point us to one spot in Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah looks forward to a different day. And he says this in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, a better, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these things I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
And the Lord who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Let's make sure that when we explain all these things, we we bring the fullness of the picture of God that we have. And although we don't know how to explain every area, here's what we know about God. He looks forward to this day when he says, oh yeah, some of those things I talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 23, there's a day coming, all of them are included, and they're included in unique ways. Names better than sons and daughters, you're not a dry tree anymore. Look at the hope and the goodness in God in that. He looks forward to their full inclusion. This Isaiah 56 is, is inclusive exclusivity, though. Because what happens here is that they're not just those who are just, yeah, well, just whoever now comes. There are those who join themselves to the Lord. They're, they're keeping Sabbaths. In other words, they're saying, this God really exists, and so we're going we're gonna to rest on this day because we think that's what he's commanded of us. This God really exists, so we're going to that place to worship him. Like, they're, they're not just those who are just, now we're included in the Lord. He's just called us, fine. No, they're those who have joined the Lord, right? So it's, there's some inclusive exclusivity. Perhaps Ruth herself is, is symbolically pointing forward to that kind of day. Now, the author that I quoted earlier, whose name I'm not sure I can pronounce, which probably means he's super smart. Ruth moves revelation forward by narrative exegesis of legal instruction. In other words, even just her, the the take on Ruth might say, here's what we're doing with the law. Here's how it's being applied as we look forward and move towards the future of one who's going to come and deliver us from underneath the law by becoming a curse for us. Perhaps it's doing that in a complementary fashion to all the other scriptural advances like Isaiah 56. In other words, I think that maybe part of what Ruth is doing is symbolically saying, hey, there's hope for Moab coming. And it's actually in her. She didn't know it, right? It's coming. It's interesting. And in Jesus' ministry, if we don't like exclusivity, that you're probably not going to like Jesus much. He makes the exclusivity of God very explicit. Not just anyone. If you want to come to the Father, you have to come through me. There's no other way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes apart from me. No one comes in any other way. There's no other way to come. And so the assembly of the Lord through Jesus, is a very specific assembly. Not just anyone is in that assembly. It's the in Christ ones that are in that assembly. Only through him. He is the way. And it's interesting then that after this happens, that one of the earliest converts after the resurrection is a foreign eunuch reading Isaiah. The gospel is that good. Moses moves from this exclusivity to uncleanness in the camp. Verse 9, when you are encamped against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. And if any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal remission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp, but when the evening comes, he shall bathe himself in the water, and as the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it, And turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. Cleanness in the camp. We're we're all in favor of that, right? It seems like, yep, it's a good idea. Do all those things that he has told you to do. And notice the reason why he does it. There's all these explanations like, no, it's about hygiene and making sure that there's not airborne diseases and not yeah that's not what moses says right moses says because the lord your god walks in the midst of your camp 
because God is in your midst. Now, that's an encouraging thought to a people. He's, he's envisioning them encamping against the enemy. This is the army. The men are encamped, and they're, they're about to go and dispossess the people in the land. That's what's being envisioned here. And he says to them, this is a shaky people, right? There's giants in the land. We're not sure we can take them. They have fortified cities. And we're supposed to go out and dispossess them just because God said to. And he says he's with us and that he's going to deliver us and all these things. But they're huge. And here's what he drops in here. God's in their midst. He's walking in your camp. You know when he walks in their midst? He does that in the garden. It's, it's Edenic language. Again, in the promised land, as they're going out to dispossess the land, there's Edenic language dropped in the midst here because God is in their midst. And so he says, be careful even with how you go to the bathroom because he's walking around. And that sounds like a silly thought, but what an encouraging thought. For the armies of Israel, scared of the enemy, God's in your midst, so be careful with all that you do. And that's going to include a whole bunch of miscellaneous laws. Right? Starting in verse 15, we've moved from various laws at the beginning of 22 to these miscellaneous laws. The miscellaneous laws, quickly. Verse 15 and 16. Take care of how you treat slaves. You shall, you shall not give up his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Careful with how you treat slaves. Again, God is in your midst. Verse 17 and 18, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. None of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Not only is prostitution out, but uh, idolatry, which is connected here, that's also out. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shouldn't have this happen, shouldn't be letting it happen in your midst, and you shouldn't justify it happening by saying, but we're giving to the Lord. You say, no, this is not okay. You shouldn't justify this with some sort of offering. Verse 19, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brothers, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The, the promised land, this place that God is giving them is a place of abundance. And so generosity should rule the day for the people of Israel. They should be reflecting what God has given to them, that he has not only delivered them into the land, but made this land an abundant place that will produce plenty for them. So that they should be able to lend to others without any hesitation. No need for interest. God has given us more than we need here. It's an abundant place. His goodness prevails. And so we should be able to rule this land and love one another with generosity. It reflects God. And I think that's what happens in verse 24. I'll skip 21 for a second. If you go to your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Again, there's, there's generosity. It's even provided for within the land. Like, you should be welcoming. Like, neighbors, hey, come on. If you're walking through, grab some grapes. Like, make sure you get some grain. Jesus and his disciples do this very thing. Like, they're just walking through. But be careful. Again, we're not greedy here. We're, we're, we're saying this is not mine. We're respecting one another. Back to 21. Another miscellaneous law. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what, what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. God's people are people who should be a people of integrity. Their, their words should match their lives. Their yes is to be their yes. Their no is to be their no. And so Moses here, 
He finishes 23, and, and at least for now, he puts the final nail in the miscellaneous laws of chapter 23, creating a, a fuller picture for us of what it looks like for Israel to be a holy people in the promised land. And we have to come to it with humility and say, like, this is not a picture that is entirely clear to us, that we entirely and fully understand. But we also see the clearer picture of the law in Jesus. Here's the one who's born under the law, who perfectly keeps the law. Apparently all these things Jesus knew how to keep perfectly and did. And where Israel and all of us have been people who have failed to be people of our word, failed to have the integrity to let our yes be yes and our no be no, Jesus is the one who not only fulfills the whole law, but he's the one who's the yes and the amen to all the promises of God. So here's God, the one who does keep every single promise, who does keep every single word, who fulfills every single part of it. All of his promises, all the fulfillment of the law, they find their end, they find their, their amen in Jesus. And what all the law has been pointing to finds its fulfillment, finds its summary in Jesus. And, and what James, he comes along in James chapter 2 and he says, those who fail at any point of the law, including any of these various laws and miscellaneous laws, are guilty of all of it. And so all of them, anyone who fails at any point, are guilty and deserve the judgment that the law requires. And that includes us, unless we're vitally connected to the one who's always kept his word. And that's Jesus, the one who fulfilled the whole law. So that we could say, if you don't belong to him... Then, then you are now guilty of the entire law because you failed at some point. And one point makes you guilty of all of it. But if you're in him, then now all of a sudden, although you are guilty of the law and deserve the judgment that the law brings, now all of a sudden you're righteous in God's sight. Not because you created that righteousness, but because you received it from the one who is fully righteous, Jesus Christ himself. If that's you, right, we, we remember what Jesus has done. We, we celebrate his work on our behalf. We, we together take a meal of faith that says, I'm vitally connected to him. I'm in him so that when God looks at me, he could see all these sins that I'm deserving of, judgment from him for. But instead, he sees Christ. He sees his righteousness. His body, his blood have now covered me, cleansed me, washed me. So I'm justified in him. If you're not in Jesus, you haven't trusted and believed in Jesus, this meal lacks all that meaning because you haven't given you yourself to him. And so he'd say, don't take this meal. Don't take it in a way that's vain. Instead, trust in Jesus. He is the perfect righteousness that you need, and he offers it to you freely if you would come and repent of your sins and believe in him. Let's bow in prayer as we prepare for this meal together. God, you are in our midst, and you say that you have sent your Holy Spirit down to this earth, Jesus, when you ascended into heaven to take the throne, and that you dwell in all of your sons and daughters, and you see everything that we see, that we think, that we do, that we say, that we want. And you know that when we compare our actions and our lives and the desires of our hearts, we fall short of your holy standard. And there's no way that we can obey all of your commands, even if we're under the new covenant. You've given us commands, and we 
fall short. And so, Jesus, we celebrate you today for fulfilling the law for us and for becoming a curse on the tree so that we could be set free from the guilt of our sin and the judgment that we rightly deserve before your throne and so that we can stand before you and come before your throne boldly and hold our heads high and we stand in grace, as Paul said, not by our works. And so Jesus, as we reflect on your death and your resurrection, we praise you for your mercy and for your grace. And God, we still know that you care how we live. Uh, fulfilling the law doesn't mean that you care less about how we live and what we do. And God, it should amaze us today that you care so deeply how we even treat birds and lost cows that you made that belong to our neighbor. You care about how we treat our neighbor's stuff, not because stuff matters so much, but because our neighbors matter so much. And so, uh, Jesus, I pray that we would seek to be holy in every way. And I, see, I ask that we would seek to find ways to apply your truth and to love our neighbor that we may not even be thinking of, Lord. Let us be others-focused like you are. Let us look to the needs of others more than we look to our own needs, Jesus. We want to be like you. You died for us. Help us live for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
touches every part of our hearts. So let's uh, stand and respond with this song, Take My Life and Let It Be.